A phenomenon that has taken place more than once in my household is one in which someone is watching something on television that I previously had found uninteresting or just didn't know about. But I'll find myself in the room doing laundry or some other task, and I'll hear enough of the dialogue that suddenly my curiosity is piqued and my ears perk up with newfound interest. The next thing I know, I'm sitting on the sofa next to a family member, laundry or other task forgotten, and I'm riveted to the screen, deeply invested in the lives of characters I hadn't even been aware of moments before. One minute I'm engaged in a task, and the next I've fallen for a story, hook, line, and sinker. This strikes me as somewhat similar to how the call story from the gospel according to Matthew took place. Two sets of brothers are busy going about their workday as fishermen, and suddenly, immediately, the text tells us, they abandon what they are doing and follow Jesus. Let's be clear, the stakes are a lot higher in the story from Matthew than my own. We only know what the text tells us, or perhaps we can surmise some details based upon what the text does not tell us. But any way you slice it, our information is limited. And yet, the work of biblical interpretation allows for so much more than we can find on any given page, right? We can look at the historical context in which the text was both lived and written. We can look at it from the perspective of literary criticism. We can consider it stacked up against the other gospel accounts and the rest of the biblical canon. Rather than being pursuits that diminish the unique power and meaning of our sacred text, I believe that when done prayerfully, earnestly, and intentionally, we can draw fresh meaning and intensified purpose out of the same words we have considered hundreds of times before. The passage we lovingly examine today is in a really interesting textual position. Preceding it, the writer of Matthew tells us that Jesus was led to the wilderness by the Spirit, where he was tempted by the devil. While there, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and then bested the devil, the tempter, the text says, with some witty repartee in which Jesus made impressive use of his knowledge of the Hebrew Bible, quoting Psalms and Deuteronomy. In the end, Matthew wrote that, then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. At the end of the passage we studied this morning, Matthew wrote that, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues 
and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. And then, a few verses after that, Matthew launches into one of the most famous portions of Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, where the Beatitudes, the poetic, inspiring words that are so beautifully frescoed here on these sanctuary walls, were shared. But today, we consider the pause in between these two momentous stories. A pause that by comparison seems to be far less dramatic, far less important. But if the study of scripture has taught me anything at all, it's to never underestimate the power of seemingly simple stories, both in the Bible and in real life. Nothing gets wasted in these ancient books. And every detail is bursting with intention and import. For instance, the first line of the text we study today is fascinating. We learn that Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, and in the very same breath, we learn that Jesus withdrew to Galilee, making his way from one Galilean town to another seemingly in order to fulfill the word of the prophet Isaiah. The journey from Nazareth to the Sea of Galilee would have taken several days on foot. If there is another or deeper purpose of Jesus' withdrawal, it isn't spelled out. Is it grief? Is it it fear? Something else entirely? We don't know. Perhaps it's simply time apart to think and plan and prepare for the beginning of his ministry. Whatever the purpose, I want to uplift it as a powerfully faithful response we might consider utilizing ourselves in the face of challenge or pain. Withdrawing in order to attend to our own needs and prepare ourselves to attend to what is ahead. This seems like a radical notion in a modern society in which fast seems to be the best selling point one can employ. But also importantly, Jesus did not stay withdrawn, but returned, and thus began his ministry And the text tells us, from that time, Jesus began to proclaim, change your hearts and minds, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or as some translations say, has come near. The New Interpreter's Bible commentary notes, has come near is a temporal statement, not a spatial one, referring to the eschatological kingdom that is already breaking in with the appearance of Jesus. This eschatological reality is the basis for Jesus' call for repentance, as it was for John the Baptist earlier and will be for the disciples later. Repent in Matthew's Greek 
means literally change one's mind. But it is loaded with the overtones of its Hebrew counterpart, shuv, which is literally translated as turn. It was not original with John or Jesus. It was the standard prophetic and Jewish means of reconciliation with God. When I was in seminary, I found the Hebrew word shuv translated as turn as a directive to repent to be so helpful in my life. Because anyone can turn away from a path of ignorance, greed, fear, or hate towards the God of love. Anyone can turn away from actions that serve self alone and towards ones that build up the body of Christ. Turning engages a growth mindset, less steeped in shame. Turn, Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God has come near. Turn, Jesus says, change your hearts and minds about what is possible. This is the good news of this story, especially as our hearts break open again at news of another mass shooting just last night. We can change, and we must. I've been a campus minister with United Campus Ministry since 1999. Always at the center of our programs has been the students we serve and essentially an invitation for them to turn their lives towards building the redeemed world of Jesus. We've said this in a variety of ways, but mostly we have enacted it with them through service learning projects. Nearly two decades ago, we provided homework help at a now-defunct charter school on the north side of Kalamazoo. The mission of that school was to educate within the African-American community, which as we well know is underserved. Most of the students volunteering with UCM at that time were white, and the majority of the kids at the school were black. One day, student volunteers decided to enjoy the beautiful spring weather and walked with the kids to a neighborhood park. The idyllic spell was quickly broken when the group arrived at the park and saw that there was a police presence. I'm not sure why the police were there, but I do know that the college volunteers were mortified by the response of the children in their care, who were saying derogatory things about police in general, who expressed fear and loathing and everything in between about the people the students believed were there to be friendly and helpful. My former colleague, Colleen, whom many of you know, took the opportunity during reflection afterwards to give the students a perspective that they hadn't been exposed to before. Every single student in that room was white. 
many of them from suburbs or rural areas, most of them middle class or higher, and they had been raised to show respect to police. They all envisioned police as those who ensured safety. Colleen talked to them about the history of police and their central role in holding slavery in place and keeping neighborhoods safe by reinforcing segregation, by keeping protesters in line during the civil rights movement. This was long before Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and far too many other people of color who have been killed by law enforcement. The point of this was not to encourage students to see police as all bad, but to help them understand why the smart, beautiful, vulnerable children with whom they worked had a different view. Why the experiences of their community rightly impacted their feelings about police. That event and conversation that day was a turning point for many of those students many of whom were going into education. That day was also a turning point for UCM, a day on which we got really clear that we were called to repentance, to turn away from the late 1990s position of leaning hard into colorblindness, and an invitation to turn towards working on racial justice with intention and humility. It may not have been truly immediate, like the text tells us the four disciples responded, but in that moment, it felt very much like turning on a light switch. Two sets of disciples, according to the story, doing their life's work. One set casting out their nets in order to catch fish, the other set repairing their nets so that presumably they could do the same. Jesus, having withdrawn and proclaimed the mission of his ministry as repentance, walked by the side of the Sea of Galilee saying, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers for humankind. And the text continues. Immediately they abandoned their nets and began to follow Jesus. With one pair of new disciples trailing behind him, Jesus moved on to the next pair, and they did the same, even leaving their father behind. Now, it would be really easy to interpret this to mean that repentance means turning our backs on the sinful, falling world, and that in order to follow Jesus, we are to strip ourselves of our humanity, steep ourselves in shame, and cut out any person or pursuit that seems not godly enough, too worldly. And as I'm sure you're very aware, there are plenty of pulpits in which that message is being proclaimed. But respectfully, and clearly, 
I think that interpretation misses the point that the author of Matthew is trying to share by a long shot. As the New Interpreter's Bible commentary says, the word repent does not picture sorrow or remorse, but a change in the direction of one's life. Get yourself a new orientation for the way you live and act on it catches both the Greek and Hebrew connotations. This new orientation is the response to the kingdoms having come near. I love the notion of a new orientation for living that drives action, but if I'm being honest, it might just be easier to imagine that we live in a bifurcated existence in which things are either sacred or profane, and that the sacred leads directly to God's kingdom while the profane leads us only on a path towards damnation. To live in this messy, confusing world can be confounding, frustrating, and painful. We are faced with daily decisions about how to follow Jesus and new orientation aside, the choices aren't always as simple as we would like. But there is yet another layer here as suggested by Bible scholar Dr. Heather Thiessen who writes, it looks like to me that Jesus is offering to change the about to be disciples identity something that they are, more than he is offering to change their activity, something that they do. Granted, in the end, it may amount to the same thing, especially as Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do. But the kind of making that Jesus is offering to do in verse 19 as in Mark, that creative kind of making, people do when they make poems or dinner. It is not the kind of making that we use as a synonym for causing or forcing or coercing. And the end result of that kind of making Jesus is offering to do is something more like a work of art or craft. So it feels like to me that this could make a difference in the way that we read this verse. That kind of making is messy and beautiful. If our identity is as a follower of Jesus, it is an invitation to set down the selves we have been and turn to the authentic, complex, and messy selves God has made us to be. And not just for kicks, because it is with our authentic, complex, and messy selves that we can best be fishers for humankind. This text reminds us that no matter what we do for a living, our central call is to be the people God made us to be so that we can build the kingdom of heaven together. It's an invitation to set down what tradition has dictated 
the expectations of ourselves and others that have clouded our ability to imagine and dream and pick up our authentic selves and the value of the authentic selves of others. Moreover, this text is an invitation to turn and follow Jesus on the path ahead. To turn can be scary because to turn is to reorient ourselves, to change our hearts and minds. But as the late science fiction writer Octavia Butler said, all that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. Change is God. Amen.